0: this is a podcast by wellhouse church where we take a closer look and dig a little deeper into this week's sermon what's going on bible nerds we're talking about the ascension of jesus so let's take a closer look
1: let's do it so i remember when i was in grad school the first time at Houston Baptist um a friend of mine named Mike Skinner was he'd finished his graduate program at HBU and he was kind of doing some adjunct teaching at HBU and he was also pastoring um a church And he did a sermon series right after Easter, I think it was. And he titled the sermon series, The Ascension Matters. And I remember talking to him about it. And his whole premise was that contemporary conversations around the important moments of Jesus have been isolated to the cross and resurrection. No one talks about the ascension. Why is the ascension so important as a theological construct?
0: Because Jesus never dies again. Cuz
1: Jesus never flipping dies again. Yeah. Like and I say it all the time, the the value of the resurrection is that he conquered death. Mm-hmm. Well, if he dies again, In he the- doesn't conquer death. Right. He's just resuscitated for a season. Mm. Um the ascension actually um puts a partial seal on the truth of the resurrection because he doesn't die. Right. And so Mike Skinner did this entire series called The Ascension Matters. Hmm. Um, And I thought it was brilliant. I thought it was great. I even borderline thought about doing it myself, but um, at the time I was in youth ministry and that didn't feel fitting. Right. Um, And so I I agree with Mike. The Ascension is largely forgotten in its importance, and I think it's overlooked, especially since most of the time we read about the Ascension, we do it from the Gospels, and the Gospels really don't have great detailed accounts of what the Ascension was. Not totally. Most of them are maybe, with a few more words... And then he ascended. Mm. <laughs> like, great. Thanks, guys. Super helpful. No yeah. wonder we don't think it's very important because <laughs> yes. it's just like, okay. It's
0: just kind of there.
1: Yeah, it just kind of happened, right? Yeah. It's like, okay. So Luke in Acts, well, Luke in Luke-Acts, um, Gives, I would say, the most dedication to the Ascension of all the gospel writers. And before we jump into it, let's go back and read the Luke version of the Ascension. Because they are going to be different. Like, I'm just going to fair warn you, they're going to be different. Right. The Luke version says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifted up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So literally, like the entire ascension narrative in Luke is he took them out to Bethany, he lifted his hands, and he blessed them. While he's in the middle of blessing them, he ascends. Okay, that's the entire thing. The difference is going to be in how you interpret the word blessing. Hmm. Because in Luke, all you're told he says is he gives a blessing. Right. Typically, when you think of blessings, they're... They are something that you are offering. Right. Yeah. What ends up happening is we have confused what a blessing is because we bless our food. Right. And we get that from Jesus. He blessed it. He broke it. He gave it. Right. That's like the common food Um form criticism that's introduced of all of the food narratives in the Gospels is he blessed, he broke, he gave. Right. Um, That's not really what a blessing is encapsulating. A blessing is something being offered. So if you look at it as a blessing is, oh, he blessed it, if you look at that as the Lucan account, and then you look at this, what we're about to look at as the Acts account, you're going to think they're different. But if you look at blessing as something being offered, mm-hmm. they're actually not that different. Watch. This is in Acts chapter 1 verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, "Lord, is this the time when you will restore the kingdom to Israel?" Now, you have to think back through the gospels. Right. What's a common conversation between Jesus and the disciples about what he has come to do.
0: He's come to enact the will of his father.
1: Okay, that's what Jesus says. Right. But they are always thinking that he's going to do it through power. Right. He's going to do it through military power. He's going to do it through political power. He's going to take a throne. Right. Some kind of power play. Right. And specifically, it's about restoring Israel. Because remember, in Samuel... God made a promise to David that his kingship, his kingdom would never end. Right. That someone from his throne, someone from his house would always sit on the throne. Right. Forever. Right.
0: That's fulfilled in Jesus, like, sort of.
1: Yeah. No, it absolutely is, but they don't think it is. Right. They want an individual person sitting on the throne of Israel and they want Israel to be a national powerhouse. Right. They're never going to get that. Yeah. But that's what they want. That's what they continually want. They are always asking questions of power. Right. Always asking questions of power. Always seeking power. Always wanting power.
0: And Even even down to uh, who among us is going to sit at your right hand. Right.
1: Correct. Yeah. Correct. They're always wanting power. They're always looking for power. And time and time and time again, Jesus goes, you missed it. It's not you flippin' missed it. That's no. not what we're doing here. And I think Luke, probably of all the gospel writers, does a good job of drawing this kind of dichotomy mm-hmm. out between them. Um, but so they're always looking for power, and they're always looking for some kind of political power, Um specifically related to the ethnic like and geographical boundary markers of the nation of Israel like they want they still believe that God has specifically chosen Israel mm-hmm. that they are the better people mm. and so they ask him lord is this the time when you will restore the kingdom of Israel now, notice, restore the kingdom of Israel. Was Israel ever a world power? No. That's actually not entirely true. During David's tenure, oh, Israel yeah, was yeah, a world power. Yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, and Solomon, Isra- David was a military leader that cr- that... Enforced, that brought Israel to a world power. Solomon was a business leader that solidified them as an economic world power. Right. So they, once again, like everything about this sentence, this question to them, should make you jump your mind back to all the things associated with Israel during David's tenure and the things that that set out. Okay. The trajectory that it laid forward. Verse 7 He replied, It is not for you to know the times or periods that the Father has set by his own authority, Mm. but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth.
0: Now, that's that's funny. That's a very Jesus answer, and it's funny.
1: Okay, so notice... Jesus gets the question that they're asking. Right. Jesus understands that they're asking a power question.
0: Yeah. And he acknowledges it in a very grace-filled way.
1: And what's the first way he acknowledges it? Um, I'm not the most powerful being on the planet. Yeah. I'm not the most powerful being in existence. Right. That's the Father. Right. No one knows when he is going to do what he's going to do on his own authority. Right. I'm just here to enact his will. Mm Mm-hmm but he's going to dictate when this actually goes down. Right. So once again, like, hey, y'all are asking questions of supreme power of which I don't even have. Right. That's God. Like, that's the Father. And then he says, but you Mm. will receive power. Yeah. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Now, if you want to talk about blessings as something being offered, what is he offering them?
0: He's... So, he's offering them power in
1: a way. He's offering them the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Which he says is, is power. power. Yeah. Now... Is the Holy Spirit power? Yes, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Uh, third person of the Trinity and yeah. dwelling within you. Holy Spirit is absolutely power. However, is it the kind of military, dictatorship, oppressive power that they're looking for? No. Not by any stretch of the imagination. No. And that's evidenced by, number one, as the book goes on and the things that they're called to do because of receiving this power, the Holy spirit, right? Which we'll get to as we work through the book. But even in this verse, there's something that is really unique about this. He says, you will receive power when the Holy spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses. Okay. Hang on. Let me get, I, I forgot a book. Hang on. What's a witness?
0: A witness is somebody who has witnessed something, who has seen something.
1: Mm. Okay. And in a court metaphor, what does a witness do?
0: Uh, They testify.
1: They offer testimony. Yeah. Right? That's, That's literally what they do. And so I think with some of those metaphors... Um, because those are our most common metaphor constructs about all this sometimes the truth of this statement can get lost on us Um, the Greek word that's translated witness or witnesses here um, is martyris. Can you, what does that sound like to you?
0: Wait, say that word again.
1: Martyrus.
0: Sounds like a martyr.
1: Sounds like a martyr. Yeah. Oh. How powerful are martyrs, Clayton?
0: Uh, well, in the fact that they have given up all of their power, mm. not very.
1: Well, and and in the fact that they literally died. Yeah. They were killed for this. Yeah. Um, probably not very powerful. Yeah. That's what a witness is. A witness is, or let me say, a martyr is a witness. A witness is someone who's seen something and testify and lives according to that truth. And so he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria. Alright, let's talk. Can I nerd out geographically here for a minute so that you can really get this? Yeah, go for okay. it. Okay. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. What's Jerusalem?
0: Jerusalem is the capital. It's the 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 hot spot.
1: For Israel. Yep. Yeah. Uh David's city. Actually, you know they david captures jerusalem with his own personal militia and makes it the capital of judah right that jerusalem is david's city the city of david like that's what jerusalem is jerusalem is david's personal city it's remembered via david right so once again Another hyperlink here to the David story. Jerusalem. Judea. The commonplace of Israel.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Or, sorry, of Judah. Samaria. What are Samaritans, Clayton?
0: They are people who are not Jews.
1: No. They are people who are not 100% Israelites. Oh, okay. Samaritans are... To use a vulgar... I'm sorry. Yes. To use yeah. a vulgar phrasing from Harry Potter, Samaritans are mudbloods. Yes. Um,
0: and I would say that that term Samaritan would probably be along the same lines of, of offense, maybe.
1: 1,000%. Oh, yeah. Because what they really are is they're just Israelites. Yeah. They're just Israelites who intermarried... And with some foreigners, and so they're like they're only partially Israelites, they're not right. full-blooded Israelites. Right. Um, and so how this happened is when the northern the southern kingdom split, Israel got the northern kingdom, and Judah became the Southern Kingdom. The Southern Kingdom was farther removed from all of the international trade routes. So the King's Highway ran through the Jezreel Plain and right through north, like literally smack dab through the heart of Northern Israel. Mm-hmm. And Northern Israel got the closest part of the coast for their geographical region. And so Northern Israel got all of the like trade routes and international influence And cultural adaptations Into their culture right? And so because of that There's a lot of like cultural appropriation And they're bringing in things From other cultures into their own stuff As very evidenced by their turning over To foreign gods And things in the Old Testament And so they just kind of intermingle And they end up being this kind of hodgepodge Of Israelites and other Right But they're still Israel Right (sighs) Calling them Samaritans is a quite offensive term. Like it's a a pejorative term. Yeah. Like if we're really getting down to it, that's what it is. It's a marker that you are other because you are Samaritan. Mm. You are not pure. And that only happened because Judah in the South, nobody went down there. It's literally like Jerusalem's on the top of a mountain. Judah's at the farthest southern part headed towards the Dead Sea, which literally it's the Dead Sea because all of everything runs down into it and it has no outlet. Like it literally has no outlet. You're only going to Judah if you want to go to Judah. Mm. That's it. You got no other reason to go to Judah. So Judah stayed isolated, quote unquote. They stayed pure.
0: Right.
1: They were untainted by very much foreign influence, as Israel was. And so Jesus, in his comment that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, he just made a very bold statement that, hey, you're going to be my witnesses In the city of which you love, the city that's embodying what you think power and the restoration of Israel is going to be, in the country, Judea, like the region, that you love, the place that you call home, but you're also going to be my witnesses to the people that you hate the most the people that intermarried, the people that left you, that you have had multiple civil wars against and conflicts against so much so that remember John 4 Jesus ends up talking to this Samaritan woman which if you read the lead up to that is interesting because Jesus changes the route that they go cuz they're they're traveling somewhere right. Samaria is not there like the place they're trying to get to, they're going, and Jesus chooses to go through Samaria, whereas the normal route would be to go around it. Mm -hmm. Right. Like they hated them so much, they didn't even want to go into the region. Right. And so Jesus says, not only are you going to go and be my witnesses to the places you love and call home, it's going to be to the places, number one, that you've never been, Mm -hmm. the ends of the world, because you... You've been isolated down there in Judah and Judea for all this time. It's time to step out. Right. It's time to go somewhere. And also, one of those places you're going to go is to the people that you hate. Yeah. The people that you cannot stand. You're going to go be my witnesses to them. And by the way, that word witness, martyr. You're not going to go yeah. power and oppress them. You're going to be a witness to them, which historically is embodied in the truth that they actually have power over you. Mm -hmm. Nothing about it is one of traditional power, and yet it's so strange because the blessing that Jesus is giving them is literally God indwelled. Right. Like God indwelling in you is the blessing that I'm offering to you, which you would think the most powerful being in existence is now living inside me, which now makes me the most powerful being in existence Mm -hmm. or one of the most. And you, you look back, right? Like, I mean, think about Elijah, Mm -hmm. right? In second or in first Kings, Elijah calls down fire from heaven and in a battle with 400 other false prophets as he, Is trying to prove God to them and they're trying to prove their God to him. He ends up calling down fire from heaven, and that moment is so powerful that he cuts off the heads of 400 false prophets Mm
0: -hmm.
1: of Baal. That's some power, yeah. That power is now living in you, yeah. And yet, you're not called to be a power, Mm -hmm. you're not called to be a king, you're not called to be an emperor, you're called to be a martyr. You're called to be the thing that Jesus was, right Nothing about it is anything close to a statement of power
0: well, I mean that's where we go back to the last will be first and the first the first will be last and the first or the uh, yes, that phrase
1: the last will be first and thank the you. first will be last thank you one thousand percent, and that's the blessing. That's the blessing that Jesus offers to them because then in verse 9, when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going and they were gazing up toward heaven, suddenly two men in white robes stood by them. Okay, let's talk about this briefly. Any guesses in who the two men in white robes are?
0: I mean... I've always been told that they were angels. Uh, okay, but
1: who, what angels? Oh. Any, Andrew. any get or any guess of what figures they're embodied by? No. Well, that's good, because we really don't know. And it just says two men in white teams. robes. Yeah. Um, most people would link this moment to the transfiguration. Oh. And so, who are the two figures that appear with Jesus at the transfiguration?
0: Um, Moses and Elijah, right? Correct. Yeah.
1: That, most people would say, this is Moses and Elijah. We have no proof of that. Yeah. No. I was just seeing if fundamentalism has reared its ugly head in you again. No. I, with
0: with texts like this, I try really hard not to read into it. Because everybody's like, oh. Um, like, we, we always talk about Gabriel being the one to bring the message to, to Mary. Mm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. It does not say that.
1: Nope. Just because he's the messenger angel. <laughs> right. Yep. It
0: does not say that. Yep. Nope. So it's don't true. read into that. Yep,
1: that's true. Um So when he had said this, as they were watching, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. While he was going up, they were gazing up toward heaven. Suddenly, two men in white robes stood by them. They said Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So you have this promise that Jesus going up is not the last time we will ever see Jesus on this earth. There's a promise that Jesus is going to come again. And the reason that's important is because that's the answer to the question. Notice, Jesus still has not answered their question. Right. Their real question is, when are you going to restore mm-hmm. the kingdom of Israel?
0: Well, he does kind of answer that by saying like, I don't know. But <laughs> like, that's not an answer. Right.
1: I don't know ain't, isn't a sufficient answer for some dude that's literally about to ghost you for the next 2,000 years. Right. Um, that's not a sufficient answer. The two men in the white robes offer the sufficient answer. Mm. It's that, hey, he told you he didn't know. And that's true. And in the time that he doesn't know, Here's what's going to happen. We're going to give you power, but it ain't going to be a power that you're used to. You're going to be a martyr. You're going to be a witness. Um, Probably going to die. Probably going to be persecuted. Probably all these things. You're going to have to go to people you hate. You're going to have to stop being exclusive and become inclusive because you got to go to the end of the world whereas you've been isolated into this 150-mile region. Right. Now we're going to stretch you out. You're going to go to the end of the earth. You're going to have to go to the people you hate. And you're going to do it all in the quote-unquote power of the Holy Spirit which is going to be one of care and kindness and gentleness. And oh, by the way, As you're doing that, there's going to come a day where Jesus is going to come back just in the same way you saw him leave. And that's when the land will be restored.